The Pittsburgh Penguins, Minnesota Timberwolves, acquisitions of professional sports teams have been all the rage in 2021. Join me and one of the preeminent dealmakers in the last 30 years as we talk about just exactly how one goes about becoming an owner right here on The Transaction Report. When you're in mergers acquisition, when you're an investment banking that you are, you've built out this very successful company in guiding buyers as well as representing owners as their, as their investment bank. How do I guide an owner who wants to sell it to you? Uh, you laid out a whole host of parameters that were important to us. We started to get into some of the effort and the longevity, the amount of time you will invest sometimes where you have a retainer up front, but a lot of risk. If you don't win the bid, there can be a lot of risk. Look, sometimes we'll talk to an owner for five years before they decide what they're going to do, whether they're going to sell a team or not. And we'll give him market intelligence. We'll give him valuations on his team. We'll tell him what we think will happen if he takes it to market, how long it'll take to sell. How much do we think he can get for the team when we're on the sell side? And the and then he finally decided, yes, I'm going to sell. It's gotten to the price point where I think it's worth it to me. When we're on the buy side, it's even worse because you're representing a buyer and you have no idea if you're going to be the winning bid, right? So you're working away on this thing, providing tons of information. You get a small retainer, but the bulk of what you make is a success fee. So, but think about this. There's an inherent conflict of interest in a success fee on the buy side, because if you know you're only going to get paid a big fee, if you win, then you have a financial motivation to tell your buyer to bid whatever it takes to win. That's not what we do. We tell the buyer what we think the team is actually worth. And sometimes people take our advice and sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's ego gratification value and there's non-financial things that come into account. Scarcity value, the person really loves that team and he'll bid higher than we say the asset's worth, right? But, you know, it takes a lot of trust on the buyer's side to take our advice. And, you know, one of the reasons we've built a successful business is because many times we'll tell people not to overbid. We just won't. Uh, We'll tell them, look, if you pay that price, that's more than you should. Now, when I tell you that, you should listen, because I have millions of reasons to tell you to buy it and no reason to tell you not to buy it, right? And those millions of reasons are green pieces of paper with pictures of presidents and other notables. So, but even then, sometimes people don't take our advice. And, but you know what? Every time I've told somebody they're overpaying over the last 25 years, they've proved me wrong. And as long as that trend continues, you know, maybe they are smarter than me. You know, that consummation of success. Um, what, so you, you mentioned there are three areas a group like yours will, as far as money is concerned, be able to make in, in a deal when you're representing the buyer. So one is there's an engagement fee for your investment banking services. Right. You're doing a lot of due diligence trying to understand what is that property worth? How do right. I know how to guide the client, assess it, make sure we can give them proper guidance on you know, that, that, that asset value is looking going to come in at a specific number, and that's going to be our bid. Uh, so you're, you're paid for that service. Um, is that kind of payment based on where you're submitting a timesheet to a client? Is that based on hours invested? How do you come up with a figure? It's it's usually a retainer of some kind, which we come up, it's a small percentage of what the total deal would be. Um, Sometimes we build in hourlies if the process goes way too long. Um, But generally during that period is when we do the bulk of the work, okay? The other thing we have to look at, it's not just the numbers historically, but we we have to give advice. If it's an asset that's not doing well financially, we have to assess what's the problem and can the problem be resolved? 
And can you turn a money loser into a money maker? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. You know, like I always tell people, you can't fight demographics. If you're in an area with very negative demographics, it's a Herculean task to change the financial results of a team. Also, it's by league, right? Different collective bargaining agreements, different, different revenue sharing. That all goes into the mix when you're looking at an asset. So on consummation, what is there an industry standard for an agent representing an athlete in various sports? There's pretty much a bankable, I know what I'm getting if I secure a contract with a team for an athlete. Or in endorsements, I can have a pretty good range. I give a range on I'm dancing in when it comes to closing a deal for a specific type of athlete. Obviously, it depends on their pedigree. With your good sales, when it, what is what is a if you're doing a billion dollar, a billion and a half, two billion acquisition, can we just in the industry, what is it known that folk who guide to a successful bid are going to walk away with? Steve, I love you, but I'm not going to tell you one because I'm not going to tell my competitors what I charge. Um, that's one. Two, it's all based on negotiation, right? I tell you it's worth, it's, I'm going to charge you X. And if I really think that you're the buyer, you're the right. guy who's going to win, then you have leverage, right? If I think you're a guy who maybe not be completely serious about this asset or don't love it, or for lack of a better term is a relative tire kicker, I'm going to charge you more. I'm going to charge you more up front because my risk is much greater that you're not going to close right? You're not going to be the winner. So you have to make an assessment. And that comes from years of experience in dealing with people and, you know, how they answer the questions. The guy I want to represent is the guy that tells me this is my favorite team. This is my one and only team I've ever wanted to buy. I have the money. I'm ready to do it. Bang. With that guy, I'm much more flexible on what I charge. Sal, I'm, I'm going to submit to the court that I'm retracting my prior question and coming about it from a different angle. How about this? Okay. I know that you've come across uh, a group that does, we won't call similar work, but they're, they're out there providing services, investment banking service, merger and acquisition services for team acquisition, team set. Have you ever come across an example throughout your 26 years in this field where you saw and you know that that company received this type of success fee and you thought it was an egregious success. Well, I mean, it's easy to criticize your competitors. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, that I always think I should win every transaction. And every time I don't, it's somebody else's fault. No, I, I know it's not. But so I is there a success like right fee? And other people are wrong. That doesn't make me right. No, that just no, no but, it, feel but right. I want you to tell us, we want to understand what was the success fee that you saw a competitor get? And you shook your set head and said, that was just way too much money they received for that transaction. Nobody will tell me what their success fee is. How would I know? It's a private transaction. I have no idea. I don't. And that, that's part of the problem with the, with the business is success fees are all over the place. And it's based on your reputation, your leverage, your ability to consummate transactions. Right? So if I told if I told you, Sal, that X, Y, and Z group received on a two billion dollar transaction a hundred million successful, would you nod your head and say, "Boy, God bless those guys"? Yeah, God bless them. That's a big fee. That's a relative big fee. to what I charge. I understand. That's a very big fee. I, I'm, I, I'm again. I want to respect. And you know, I love you too. So I would never want you to divulge anything that you're not what I am What I'm interested in hearing though, is without by process of elimination, I'm interested in understanding when do we get in the realm of reasonable on a, say, a transaction within a range of, let's say, an example where we have a, a fine buyer like Steve Bomber dropping approximately 2.1 plus bill on uh, on a fine team in Los Angeles. 
what would someone who, who assisted him in that process, if, they, if you heard that that group walked away with a 50 million success fee, is that another time where we shake our head and go, darn, that is just an extraordinary payout. And he paid way, paid way over the top of numbers that should not be paid. It depends how challenging the transaction was. It depends on the amount of work they did. A number is just a number, right? If you have a buyer with leverage who can hire anyone, you want to get hired. And so you're going to be flexible on your rate. And I'm not going to get down to numbers. Got it. I'm, I'm so, let me go to the other way. Challenge. You mentioned challenge can increase, increase the complexity. You know, there's a challenge associated. Help us understand the stratification of what, what would lead a business to, to generate a higher success fee because there were these things called challenges along the way. Can you define some of those challenges? The number of competitors, the complexity of the transaction, how what is the, why does that Why does that affect sell? Why well, does the number of competitors affect their work? If I'm on the buy side, my chances of winning are reduced every time a new bidder comes in. If I'm on the sell side, different story. If I'm on the sell side, look, Steve, there are two. When somebody says, what, what is something valued? You know what my answer is? Am I on the buy side or the sell side? When I'm on the sell side, I think it's worth a lot more than when I'm on the buy side. Okay? Because I'm representing two, two different sides of the table. I want my bidder, when I'm on the buy side, to get the best possible price and still win. And when I'm on the sell side, I want to take every dollar off the table, every single one. And I will do that. I will do that in the closing adjustments. I will fight for every dollar because I'm representing someone who's buying. If I'm representing someone who's selling, I'm sorry, if I'm representing some seller, if I'm representing someone buying, I'm going to be doing the same thing at the closing table, trying to get every dollar to my client as a savings. So it challenges number of bidders. What are some of those other factors that you, you would love them as challenge? complexity of the transaction. Some transactions are very clean. It's 100% bid. You buy the whole thing, period. Some are have paths to control. They have put and call options involved. Hmm. I mean, some of them are you have to go through a, a, a ton of legal documents, figure out what's going on, make sure your client's, client's protected. And then some of them, you have to kind of do a lot of work to figure out, am I turning this thing around? If it's a simple transaction, the team's been making money forever, right? And all you do is you buy it, it's a turnkey, and that's doing a heck of a lot of work. But if the thing's been losing money for the last 10 years, and you have to really advise the client on you know, what do you think they need to do to turn this thing around? That's a lot more work. That's a lot more work. It's not plain vanilla. It's just not. And no two transactions are alike. The leagues are different. The cities are different. The position of the brands in those cities are different. I mean, keep going. You know, it's just. And, and a lot of times what you see on the market, you get adverse selection. You know, it's rare that the Los Angeles Lakers come on the market or the New York Yankees, okay? What generally comes on the market are the teams at the bottom of the league table. Hmm. And some of those are fine. They're just in small markets, and some of them are a mess. But what you mentioned earlier in our discussion was that winning is not a, uh, an indicator of valuation of teams. You're correct. I didn't okay. say we're a mess from a winning point of view. I mean a financial mess. Got it. So you, you have a lot a ton of-, of money. I mean, I look, I'd rather buy a team that really is not very good, but makes money than a team that wins every year and loses a ton of money. Because as soon as you start controlling payroll, you get all kinds of negative flack. The media kills you. The fans kill you. The internet kills you. Everybody kills you because these things are almost like a public trust. People that are fans of a team. It's not like you're buying a soap company. They believe 
that they own the damn thing and they should have input in how it's run. And they don't care if the owner loses tens of millions of dollars as long as they can watch TV or go to the game and their team wins. That's all they care about. And, and if you're writing a 50 or $100 million check in losses, that's not fun. So that complexity, the structure, when do you find out how complex it is as if you're representing the buyer? When is it that you know? You're, stru- here, you're structuring a deal with a buyer. I think yeah. this, is, this is interesting to me. You, you know pretty quickly. I mean, you know pretty but, quickly. But, but you're representing a buyer. What is it that you're getting in declaration to help you understand? First of all, you've got to get into a contract with a buyer to be able to right. establish your success fees. When are That's you right. being able to do that if you haven't seen the complexity in house? I've already spoken to, before I sign up, I already know just from the market what the deal is. Is it, is it a clean deal? Are there a whole bunch of limited partners getting out? And now I'm taking them out and I need to find a path to control. Is the seller easy to deal with? I can kind of figure out, is, has the seller hired somebody who's easy to work with? Or has he hired somebody who's going to be a pain, right? Well, if I'm going to be dealing with somebody who's going to be a pain, I'm going to want to get paid a little bit more. I mean, it's, it's an art, not a science. There's no formula, formulaic way of figuring this out. It's a feel you get. And when you're in the business for a long enough period of time, you know the people that you can work with fairly easily and the people you can't. I mean, it's just like anything else in life, right? Have you ever represented a buyer, went on to a successful acquisition, became seller later on and retained you? Bought a team and sold a team. Not yet. Usually people that buy these things hold them forever. I mean, there's not a lot of velocity here. I did, I guess, I I represented Bob Johnson when he bought the expansion team in Charlotte in the NBA. And then he hired us also to sell the team and Michael Jordan wound up buying it. So I guess that's one example where we went through the full cycle. We were on the buy side to start with and we wound up on the sell side. Um, and I, I'm sure there are probably one or two more over the years, but that's, that, that's rare that that happens. Once somebody buys one of these things, they generally hold them. Is there any sport that you see at this point, 2022, where you think that particular sport will have more robust sale than any other, just percentage-wise, that you, you target as saying that that's – there's an indicator that says that sport, whether it's through COVID, the result of COVID. Is there any sport that you think is more vulnerable than another sport? That's a tough one. I mean, COVID's behind us, really. Largely, the owners have taken the hit. Um, I don't think that's what's going to affect the velocity of change, I think, uh, of, of sales. I think what's going to start affecting it is prices continue to go up. And as prices go up, People start thinking about, is it time for me to take capital gain? Are capital gains taxes going to go up a great deal? That affects their thinking too. Now, I don't know. I'm not a politician, thank God, nor do I want to be because, you know, my motto is those who can do, those who can't teach, those who can't do or teach become politicians. So I'll leave that to the ruling class. But that's going to have an impact. And then people are going to, uh, a lot of people have viewed these assets that they're resistant to economic downturn. So if their view is that there's going to be an economic downturn, you get a lot of demand. For instance, during the last big economic downturn in 2007, eight, there were seven control sales, seven. And, And that's a time where well, I'm going to say Bear Stearns went bankrupt. I know you're going to tell me they didn't go bankrupt, but yeah, they did. The government forced the sale. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. I, I was in the middle of the Cubs transaction, and the, and the Tribune companies, which owned the Cubs, went bankrupt in the middle of the transaction. The world banking system was like nowhere to be seen. AIG should have folded. Give me a break. Keep going. 
there were seven control sales and six of them were either met or exceeded the Forbes valuations. Three of those were record prices. And the only one that wasn't was the sale of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that was an internal sale where one of the brothers bought in the other brothers. So these are very robust assets in economic downturns. Look, in the middle of the pandemic, middle of the pandemic, the New York Mets sold for the highest price by far that a major league baseball team had ever sold. The Utah Jazz sold for $1.66 billion, which is well above what they were estimated to be worth. There's a huge demand for these, especially in troubled economic times. You know, I, I like what you said about Forbes. Yahoo has services as well. How, how much do those Forbes assessments, value, team valuations, guide folk like you and influence the, the kind of baseline decision-making of prospective owners? I think they influence the owners more than us. We do independent analysis, but it gives them an index. You know, where's the team? Where's it heading? I think from, from that point of view, looking at the trend line, it does give them a pretty good view. Now, you know, to Forbes' credit, I think they've done a pretty good job, but they don't have detailed financial information oftentimes. So a lot of what they do is based on the best analysis they can with what they have. I mean, you know, we have the books. It's the best guess. changes everything. Right? What is the best guess? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I remember years ago, not too many years ago, five five years ago, so four years ago, when the Houston Rockets were sold, right? Yeah. Yeah, I said to some of my friends in the industry, they said, oh, the Forbes valuation was 1.6 billion. I said, it's going to sell between 2.2 and 2.6. I don't know why I said that. I just had an inner sense that that was going to be based on the trajectory of what I was seeing in the market. That's what, and it went for somewhere in that in that higher. Yeah, went to Look, Steve, my guys run detailed financial analysis. They build incredibly complex models, right? They dump data into it. They filter it. They do comparisons. I can tell them within two percent, one way or another, what the thing's going to sell for, and the number that they will wind up giving me in three or four weeks' work. And it frustrates the hell out of them. Hmm. What's interesting, why? though, is that the Forbes, I think it's, it's, it's a good guide. It's just interesting how in the last, say, three, four, five years, how many deals have gone so far above. But think about actual- it. Think about it. There are financial considerations when you look at these things, clearly. Okay. But there's also scarcity value and ego gratification value. Okay capitalism is a great thing. It produces many more billionaires than teams. And as the number of billionaires continues to grow, the number of people that can afford to buy these assets continues to grow. And guess what? The supply is constant. The demand goes up. I don't know. I remember from Economics 101, price goes up. And the hardest thing to figure out is the non financial aspect, the ego gratification value, the value of the brand to somebody. That is very, very difficult to figure out. Now, how do I get within one or 2% of what my guys are going to say? I'm in the market. You know, it's funny to say this, but most of the people I talk to every day are billionaires. They're constantly talking to me about this, about that. What about this team? What about this league? And I asked them, what would you pay for this asset? What would you pay for that? They may, it's not on the market. But I have a database in my head of all these conversations I have with people, and they're telling me what they'd be willing to pay. Well, guess what? What is something worth? It's not worth what I model it to be worth, or what my analysts model it to be worth. Every single product is worth what someone who could actually buy it is willing to pay for it. Explain to me why there are certain automobiles that cost $400,000 when they do the exact same thing a $40,000 automobile does. Maybe they're a little faster. It's because somebody's willing to, look, 
There are watches that cost tens of thousands of dollars, and there are watches that are $25 that do exactly the same thing. Explain to me the difference. The market determines what they're worth. I don't. I can't. And so what I do is I understand the market because I fundamentally understood that it doesn't matter what number I think the damn thing is worth. If the market thinks it's worth more or less, then that's what it's worth. And if I get the best market intelligence by talking to people, guess what? I have a much better view of what's going on. You know, you mentioned earlier about putting forth that bid. It could be a six to eight page document. Uh, if you win the bid, they're coming back with full due diligence. A lot more paperwork to produce, obviously, substantial amount of paperwork. So take us up to that point where you, you, your team, you mentioned the team usually of about eight, could be spending months putting together this bid, guiding the, the buyer or group of buyers, consortia. Uh, you mentioned that you, you may have a, a $2.5 billion uh, bid to put in. About 80% of that is absolutely 100% equity. And uh, that other remaining 20% is going to be debt and be financed from a variety of, of uh, areas where that money could come. You're not put in that bid. So you got, you submitted it. There's a deadline, right? You're all, are, usually, are usually, by the way, taking taking it to the to the max deadline? Do you have a, is there a certain strategy that most people will take? No, I mean, I, I don't like to put in the bid early because people take the bid and shop it. Mm -hmm. So if they tell me it's X, then that's where I'll go for. I mean, by that point, we'll have our financing in place. We've talked to a group of banks. So we have all our money together. If we get the deal done and we sign a purchase and sale agreement, then there's confirmatory due diligence. You know what? This is a very simple business. We're not building, you know, rockets to go to Mars here. They're, well, some of your owners might be. Well, they are. But that's how they got the money to buy these things. But the teams themselves are very simple businesses. You know, I mean, you have media revenues, you have gate. You have concessions, you have signage, you have naming rights, you have parking, okay? And then your biggest expense is player payroll. So it's not like you're going to find, will we do due diligence? Yes. But I've never found like, oh my God, there's a ticking time bomb in this business. It's not. You know, they have, you know, some lawsuit because their main product is, a, they stole a patent from somebody. It's not that. You know, you're pretty close to getting a deal done. Once, you, once you've moved on and been the winning bidder, I've, I don't think I've ever had a transaction where we've won the bid and then we found something that caused us to lose the deal. So, you, so, so when you put in that final bid, it's in, you're done. Timeline to get response? It depends. I mean- And you also, by the way, you also mentioned that Never on face value do they accept your bid. It's always going to come back to you. I mean, no matter what your bid is, it's too low. So that right. process of first initial bid, it's too low. You know it's too low. They know it's. They know they're well, going to come they, back to you and tell you it's too low. I know low. it's not too low, but they're telling me it's too low, and they have another bid that are hundred percent. So now right. you've up. So you've now upped I have your, to assess. Right. Is that, that true or not? And then what I go that? back to my client and say, "Okay, pal." This is the deal. We're in an X. They're telling me X isn't high enough. What are you willing to go to? How much do you want this asset? Now, some people have enormous amounts of money, and they'll say, I don't know. You tell me. What do you think will blow their socks off? We win. Some people will be more thoughtful about it. And some people will say, this is my bid. I think it's a fair bid. You've shown me your model. You've given me your advice. This is my bid. And sometimes you'll win because they lie to you. <laughs> you are the high bid. Or sometimes you find out you're not the high bid. But as long as your client is happy with the outcome, right, the client makes the determination, not me. You know, I can give advice. I can't force people to take it. I've had, I've had situations where I've told people they shouldn't bid higher. They're overbidding. And they tell me thanks, but I'm going to bid higher anyway.
So that timeline where you get the nod and say that it's not high enough, what, what's the turnaround time to come back with a secondary? Yeah, usually a couple of days. I mean, couple it depends on the deal. Do they yeah. ever come back to you again and say getting better but not good enough? No, that's a high-risk strategy. Because if I'm the high bidder and they say that, I could drop the bid or I could get out. And then what? You know, you got to be careful when you take the last dollar off the table because you don't want the guy to walk away from the table. Because if that guy's the high bidder, it's a high-stakes game you're playing. You know? You don't know how the, how the buyer's going to react. Do you get guidance where they'll say, listen, the bid was X. This is what we're dealing with. We need X plus Y. I mean, sometimes you do, but again, it's a credibility issue, right? What's to stop me from saying that? And I don't have the, I don't have that bid in hand. Maybe I don't have another bid in hand where I think the guy could actually close because he has his financing in place. By the way, what about personality? It's not approvable. What about personality since you've been doing this for a quarter of a century? What about personalities that you know you're up against these other bidders and they're represented by these negotiators? Do you ever find that the personalities of the other bidders, their investment bankers, their folk that are doing sales work for them, do you ever have a sense that you've assessed that team and you have a pretty good idea of where they're positioning their bid? Not, not really. I. See, maybe it's just me, but I don't really worry about the other bidders. I worry about my bidder coming up with a very strong bid, developing a relationship with the seller, which is also very important, right? Because the seller's got to believe that you're going to close, that you're going to show up and you're going you're to be approvable and you're going to be easy to deal with when you're doing all the closing adjustments, right? That gives me a slight advantage, okay? But... I don't really worry about the other bidders. We put in our best bid. We either win or we lose. And when I'm on the sell side, as long as the prospective bidders are, well, first of all, I vet all of them, right? Because the last thing, Steve, you want to do is get a winning bidder and get them turned down by one of the leagues, right? Or you get a winning bidder and find out he can't close. He wins the bid, but... Last time you saw a scenario like that? I've never had one because we spend a ton No, not of time. you, you, but others in the industry where you've seen. I'll never know because nobody will tell me my bidder walked away, right? Everybody so you, you, don't, when you don't get an announcement, deal done. So the, all that due diligence is completed before the announcement is made. In other words, yeah. Oh, yeah. they could be going with a group that ultimately got rejected. But behind the scenes, they won the bid? That almost never happens. I mean, because if you do your vetting, you're going to know. I mean, I I look at perspective. Unless I know the guy. Look, if the guy's a household name, the guy, the woman, when I say guy, it has no connotation. The whole human race is a guy to me. So. Folk our age get to say that. We get to yes. say. And anybody below the age of 50 is a kid. Okay. <laughs> That's just me. Okay. So if, if it's a household name, I'm going to do less due diligence. Right. If it's somebody I've never heard of, then I'm going to do a lot of due diligence. Where do you get the money? Does he have the money? Is he approvable? I ask around. I do a lot of due diligence before I engage the guy. And if I'm on the sell side, before I say yes to the guy, I want to know who he is and is he approvable? And can he close? That is really, really important. The last thing you want to do is take a bid that can't close or is not approvable. The last thing. Now, that's never happened to me. Um, and I, don't, I can't really say it's happened to anybody else. I haven't heard that. But who knows what happens? All these are private deals, right? Not public. You ever have, you know, the business of sports can be a rough, rough playground. Sports marketing, event management, athlete representation. There be some tough things said about competition yeah. to discredit them. Do we see in this industry when we're making bids that there are certain types of unethical behavior that can take place to try and discredit a bidder in the process? 
that, that may make it to the media that we know X, Y, and Z is bidding. And all of a sudden there's, let's just say for the take, sake of today's vernacular, there's fake news about the guy's financial standing, or there's a character uh, attack against his, you know, a real rough piece of news comes out to just discredit the bidder whom you're representing. Not, uh, you know, I thought about that while you were asking that, Steve, and I don't think I've experienced that. Um, you know, what I have seen is somebody wants to buy a team, and if the, if the owner of that team sometimes has a problem, then some of those people will start saying stuff to the press because they want to force the guy to sell. I've seen that. But, and that's very unfortunate when that happens. Very, I mean, you know, I think people should be judged on facts, not on rumors. Well, we saw that, we saw that with the Mets. Yeah, uh, we did. That was probably extent. one of the highest profile events uh, due to the Madoff scandal and the way he had allocated his monies to handle Bobby Manila and take the, the arbitrage on the percentage that he was earning through Madoff to be able to pay off that 25 a year uh, payout mm. to Benia, uh, approximately 25 year payout. Yeah, we, we did see that. And there was a concerted effort to force the, uh, the Wilpons to sell the team. They didn't uh, until they were ready to move forward and sell it. And they got a, they, they did a great job selling it. I give them tremendous credit. They got a great price for the team and, you know, they hung in there throughout the entire, you know, made off problem. Um, but I don't like it when people are forced to do anything based on you name it. You know, I I'm, maybe it's just my age, but I think people sh they should be willing sellers. You know, outside of folks like a, that you can't help. Outside of folk like a, a Donald Sterling case, right? You know, which precipitated the Steve Ballmer acquisition. Um, do we have many examples where people have been, you know? made some poor decisions in their personal life and has led to their ousting whether it might be racially motivated whether it might be financially or, or uh, indiscretions with, with, with people of the opposite sex you know what no but there is pressure applied on people not to the extent look the sterling thing was an open and shut case yeah I mean, the NBA had to get him to sell the team. I mean, come on, give me a break. I haven't seen anything that concrete since then. But, you know, there are always rumors floating around the market. There always are. You ever have a seller who just won't deal with a buyer you've ever put together? Yes. <laughs> no, we're not, Sal, like this, is, this is not TMZ. So we're not no, looking no, for it, names. Look, if the seller doesn't like the buyer and the seller has alternatives, right? You're not going to sell to them. Do, do you get that message right from the get-go? You don't get it right from the get-go. People are usually pretty diplomatic, a lot more than I am. But you can feel it. And if you're representing the seller, the seller will tell you, I'm not selling to this guy. I don't care what he bets. We're not talking about racial issues. We're talking about just personality. No, no, no. no. It's just personality. Right. No. Yeah, nothing to do with race or nationality or anything else. It's just they don't like the guy. I mean, they don't. I mean, look, you've met people who, look, you know, my biggest problem is every single freaking person I meet, I like. And it takes me a long time to figure out that I shouldn't. But there are a lot of people who are much more sensitive than I am and less understanding and they're billionaires, let's face it. And they're selling a multi-billion dollar asset and they have five bidders and one of them, they just don't like. I don't know why, they just don't. And they'll never really tell you why. Your personalities, we spoke earlier, while people like you, it's rule number one, how much money you bring to the table. And rule number two is never forget rule number one. That it's all about the money you're bringing to the table. However, a guy like you is going to be different than someone representing another investment banking group, advisory group. Look, I think the difference is that I've been doing this for so long. 
that people know I want to make long-term friends and not short-term profits. So I will tell you the truth. And I don't understand why I had one client said he was going to hire me because, you know, I tell him the truth. And if he was over betting, I tell him, well, everybody should do that. That shouldn't be, you know, an exceptional thing to do. I mean, you're hiring me to give you my opinion. My opinion should be fair, right? It shouldn't be based on whether or not I'm going to get paid. But people, some other people take the view that, you know, they're going to take the money while they can. And, you know, maybe next week won't get here. I don't know. Number one attribute to succeed in the role you've played in building your company? Um, perseverance. You know how many phone calls I made when I first got into this business? No, seriously. hundred, a hundred and eighteen to be, to be exact. I kept my lot. Those were made Nobody to Nobody would speak to me. Who Nobody were you calling? Talk to me. But who were you calling? I was calling the owners of teams over and okay. over. over I mean, you, were, you weren't dying 411. No, no, no. I couldn't get through the assistance. And, and then finally, finally, on a Friday afternoon, Abe Poland, who owned the Capitals and the Bullets at that time, picked up the phone and I, I gave him my sales pitch. And you know what? I love Abe. Abe has been gone a long time. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met. And he had mercy. And he said, come down to Washington and have a meeting with me. And he steered me to my first client, which was the San Antonio Spurs. And... You, wait, wait, can we back up on that for one moment? Mm -hmm. So you contacted the owner of the Capitals. I contacted every owner in the world. Wait, but you contacted him, mm -hmm. but he gave you an intro. Well, I went down to Washington. We talked. He sort of, I guess, felt that I did know something about the business. Said that one of the other teams in the league, the San Antonio Spurs, might need a financing. And he made the introduction for me to San Antonio, owner to owner, which makes a big difference. And I flew down in August. It was 197,000 degrees in San Antonio and did my first deal. And you didn't lose a pound, by Yeah. Let me tell you, Mr. Abe was one of the, he was an amazing guy. He was so just, you, you ended up, so you provided, it was an introduction for finance. It wasn't a team sale no, wasn't a team sale it was the first transaction I ever did and then slowly we developed our MA business and you know we started doing some pretty big deals and we're successful we built up momentum moved the business to Lehman Brothers did some historic transactions there we we helped George Steinbrenner finance the S network when he was in litigation with MSG uh we we represented the Wilpons when they bought 50% of the Mets from Nelson Doubleday. We did a bunch of other deals, and then we left 17 years ago to form our own firm before Lehman blew up and everything. And it wasn't won. because I knew Lehman was going to blow up, by the way. I'm not that smart. I just left in a timely manner. I'm happy for you. Me too. You got a ring. MLB championship ring. Two I have of three. Them. Oh, you're two three. No, no. I have a Spurs championship ring. Right. I have a 2009 Yankees championship ring. We were financial advisors on New Yankee Stadium. And I have one of the 108 Cubs championship rings because it was 108 years between championships. Yeah, All three of those rings have my name on them. And you know, forgive me for saying this. Forgive me for saying this as a, as a, you know, a New Yorker. But that Cubs win in my lifetime as a sports fan, I have to say, I shed more tears of joy in that game seven. It was one of the truly great statements about, about the, human, the human condition, right? That, that emotionally, a guy who has nothing to do with the Cubs, like myself, could feel this sense of empathy and this deep yearning, even though the other team was also, you know, something had a compelling narrative. But that Cubs team, particularly the personalities on that team, 
which made it, and with Theo Epstein's narrative coming from Boston. What is it about sports that is you and I reminisce about that? What what approximate, what year was that? Oh my God. I don't even remember. Are we talking about six years? Six, seven? It's been a while, yeah. Seven years? Mm -hmm. But we can get the tingles of kind of that feeling where first we smile a lot. <laughs> if we reminisce about that victory and remember what we were feeling. And then it gives us a kind of sense of boyhood charm, of kind of like feel the dreams, penetration of our soul. It's different. There's no other product like it. Look, according to a number of academic studies, if you're nine years old and you're wearing the hat of your favorite baseball team, you're more likely to change your religion than change your team affiliation. Think about that one. I mean, what other product can you say that about? Can't say that about any other product. What is it in your mind as a fan and as someone who's in the business of sports and lives and drinks? It? And you, you said earlier in our, in our discussion that one of your favorite buyers, it's in fact very important to you, is get a buyer who, who dreamed about owning this team. You know, this was his fancy as a kid. Maybe his dad took him to the park. He reminisces about his childhood, great memories of, of adolescent life, of youth. And now he wants to buy that team or she wants to buy that team. What do you think is in going on in our brain? What do you think it is that sports does, perhaps for many, they would take nothing else but watching the sports game, and that could be sacrificing time with the spouse, the child. What is it about sport that is so viscerally real for us, so unifying, the great unifier, but also the great emotional, evocative sense of upliftment we get in life? You know what? I've asked myself that question many, many times. I was directly across the street from North Tower at the World Trade Center on September 11th. And yeah, our building was destroyed when the North Tower came down. All of my people got out okay. Obviously, I did too. All right. But that year, there was a World Series in New York. You remember the Diamondbacks played the Yankees? And both the Diamondbacks and the Yankees were clients of mine, but the great George Steinbrenner, who I love, George, he was, we did so much work for the Yankees. We still do. They're our biggest client. Didn't give me tickets. So I had breakfast with Jerry Colangelo, and he said to me, <laughs> I'll see you at the game tonight. I said, no, you won't. And he goes, why not? I said, because I don't have any tickets. He said, George didn't give you tickets. I said, no. He said, come up to my room. He was staying at the Hyde Hotel here. And he gave me tickets to a ticket to all three games in New York. Those games unified the city. We had people of every socioeconomic class, of every religious group, of every ethnic group, all together rooting for that team. It was an incredible unifying force, that World Series. It was what the city needed. Now, unfortunately, the Yankees lost in game seven because the greatest reliever of all time threw the ball over the second baseman's head, but I digress. Um, it was unbelievable. One of the, one, one of the things I asked my students, I, I, you know, I teach at the business school at Columbia, 35% of my students are foreign students. And I asked them, why are you taking a course on American sports? And I could never figure it out. And I've been doing it for 20 years. And finally, one of them told me they learn about American culture and they have something to talk about at every gathering that's not controversial. It's one of the few things we can still talk about. When I had my first shoe shine business, you know, I developed a relationship with the clients. I got the New York Daily News and I started the business in 62. I was 10 years old. The message just started. So I was in Brooklyn. All these old Brooklyn Dodger fans were becoming Met fans and all the Yankee fans are Yankee fans. And I'd read as best I could, the stories about the Yankees and about the Mets being terrible. And I would ascertain what the guys whose shoes I was shining, 
which team he was leaning towards, and I talk about that team. And you know what? That guy enjoyed it. I had something I talked to him about that he wouldn't get mad about. It was perfect. Now, I thank God every day that he made me a Yankee fan because I got here in 1958 and there were no Mets. Um, or else I'd have to suffer through being a Met fan. But um, it is a great unifying force. Sports is incredible. It's almost tribal. It, re it really is. I mean, how else can you define it? You know, it is so interesting in your world how for businessmen who aim to save every last cent in their commercial business, what got them there to become that billionaire, to make that offer that you're putting forth to the seller. It is interesting how effective they are running a tight ship in whatever product they're doing, technology, what have you. But as you said earlier, you know, Steve, when they're all said and done, for them to say to Sal, hey, listen, it's just another 100 million. It gets me this ownership right that transcends commercial, the prudence I apply in my main business just goes out the door. It transcends everything. Think about it. If, if you own... I don't know, company X, and you were a billionaire. Nobody knows who you are. You go out and you buy a baseball team, you buy a basketball team, everybody knows who you are. You become famous in your community. And you own an asset that you love, and you may never get a chance to bid on it again. Right? So you're 50 years old, you've made a gazillion dollars, your favorite baseball team comes on the market, and it may never come on the market in your lifetime. You have one poke to get that pick. You're going after it. And you, you forget many of the things you learned in your base business that made you a billionaire. And then once you own it, you want to win because you love the team. And so you might start deficit spending because you want to win. And winning is more important to you than making money in that business. It's a great position to be in, but it's the greatness of America that allows people to do that. I mean, greatest celebration, greatest celebration you ever saw, Sal, of one of your clients when you won a bit? Oh, boy. Um, well, it took us two years to finally get the Cubs deal done. So I would say the Ricketts celebration of winning and owning the Cubs. They were a Cubs fan since they were little kids. And one of the reasons I picked them to represent is because Tom Ricketts said to me, this is the only team I want to buy. There was no other team. You know what? That's who I want to represent. The person that wants that team. If somebody tells me, eh, you know, I want a baseball team, maybe this one, maybe that one. You know what? They're not going to be the winning better. You're just not. By the way, time of consummation after you got the nod that you're good to go, your client's good to go. Let's go through all that due diligence process. What type of time frame are we usually looking at? Well, I mean, it depends on trend. the Cubs transaction. We actually had to take the team through a 363 sale in bankruptcy because the Tribune companies, which own the Cubs and had billions of dollars of liabilities, filed for bankruptcy in the middle of the sale. So that took like almost two years to consummate. By the way, three, 363. 363 sales is sale through a bankruptcy court. I'm sorry, it's under the federal bankruptcy code. Um, so you ended up getting that adjudicated and approved through the yeah, pre-packaged bankruptcy. They might have had other creditors that would have well, somehow. They, they, well, they, they had other creditors, which we weren't sure if they did or didn't have a claim on the team. So we had to make sure. Um, so that was a much, much more complex transaction than most. But once you get the deal done, remember, it's got to be approved by whatever league, right? So it depends on the time of year. If you're trying to get an NFL deal done during the NFL playoffs, good luck with that. You're going to wait. Same thing with Major League Baseball. Same thing kind of with the NBA. Remember, the owners vote on whether or not you're approved. So, you know, you got to get them all together. The playoffs are going on. It sometimes takes a while. If it's not during a playoff period, 
It's faster. Um, depends what the bid is. Depends who the guy is. Look, if it's somebody who's a very well-known name or somebody who's very well-known and is friends with a number of influential owners, it makes things easier. If you could be the owner of one team and you've got this planet Earth to scour, which team does Sal end up acquiring? Oh, come on. I mean... I bleed pinstripe blue. <laughs> I mean, it was not meant to be. See, I mean, there, I, there's my error. Give me, I'm a, let me step that one back. Sal, excluding the Yankees, uh, buy, and excluding the Yankees, and you can buy one team on the planet excluding Earth. Excluding the Yankees, you are the sole equity owner of, and it's gifted to. You. What is it? What's the property you get the most joy owning? The New York Football Giants. I actually got to work with the great Wellington Mara when we represented the Giants in the now not new stadium in the Meadowlands. But I remember when I was a little kid, I'd see him on the sidelines in NFL films before they started showing NFL games all the time. And I mean, to me, he's one of the greatest men in the history of sports. I mean, he's the guy that gave up his local media and shared it with all the other teams and built this framework that's made the NFL what, is it, what it is today. And people forget about that. And he was, I mean, he was a better man in real life than I would ever imagined by imagining who he was. He was a phenomenal person. He cared so much about his fans. He was just incredible. But I got to deal with Abe Poland. I got to deal with George Steinbrenner. I got to deal with, I mean, one of my best friends is Jerry Reinsdorf. Jerry's like the greatest. There are so many owners who I love. They're wonderful people. They, they're great. They're not just clients. They're friends. They're just great people. But the one that gave you the joy, it would give you that sense of, I feel good being an owner of this team. Not because like of Wellington Mara, but because of your sense that this is the best property to own on the planet Earth. Look, we could argue what the best property is, but the best property is with the property you love, right? I love the Yankees. I'd want the Yankees. If I couldn't get the Yankees, I'd take the Giants, okay? Let me be honest here. I'm a New Yorker, right? I'm not going to tell you I want to buy the Boston Red Sox. I don't care what the economics are, okay? So here, here, here's the follow-up that will kind of, as we come down to the waning minutes, you can't buy a New York team. What team are you buying? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I can't buy a New York team. That's a tough one, all right? Because if I said the Dodgers, you know, they used to be rivals of the Yankees, so I have a problem with them. I love the San Francisco Giants from a a lot of reasons, but again, they're a former New York team. What would I buy? Oh boy, you're killing me. I, I can't even I can't even think of it. A non-New York team. You got me. I don't know. There was it's so interesting, many it's interesting how you went. It's interesting how you went to baseball first, by the way. Look, I love baseball. Baseball is by far my favorite sport, but remember when I was a little kid. The NFL wasn't a big deal. Right. Okay? So of the, of the hundred tra transactions you've been involved with or financing deals or bids successful, not yet successful, what percent of those were in baseball? Um, I think the majority of deals we've done is the NBA. Um, baseball, I mean, the fewest of the NFL because there are almost no transactions in the NFL. They hardly ever turn over. So I would say baseball's maybe 35% of our business. You know, we don't do business because we love the teams or the sport. Or Look, I'm the only guy in the world that does business with the White Sox and the Cubs. I do business with the Yankees and the Red Sox. I do business with the Dodgers and the Giants. Okay? There are teams that don't like each other, but I love the ownership of those teams and I think they do a great job, and I'm able to separate the business side from the sports side. On the other hand, 
I will never sit in a suite with an owner and they're playing the Yankees or the Giants and make believe I'm rooting for their team. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. That's why I never go. When they invite me to a Yankee game, I won't go because they're just going to wind up getting mad at me. That's a, so that's a classic. It's By the, the way, truth. you mentioned you're teaching at Columbia the business school, and about 35% of your students are from overseas. You know, we saw the likes, although he was educated here in college at Yale, Joe Tsai, <clears throat> former vice chairman of Alibaba, at the CFO vice chairman of Alibaba, originally from Taiwan, uh, California-based, bought in uh, one of the uh, indoor box lacrosse teams, and obviously now owns uh, the New York or the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets. Thank, Thank you. you. The Brooklyn Nets. A lot of folk. You mentioned democracy does well for billionaires. But you know what? I spent 13 years over in that region, the Far East. I originally went over to learn Chinese in 89. Wow. You have a lot of you have a lot of billion lot of billionaires on that eastern seaboard of China. A lot of them. Like Joe Tsai, although from Taipei. Soccer and basketball. That's right. Those are the two sports. Now, How, if you say South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan, a lot of baseball fans. A lot of baseball. So how much competition is coming your way from the international community as we get to be a much more global uh, community of sport? Not there yet, but it's coming. How the much price pressure, how much inflationary price pressure will there be because that sense of gratification that I am from overseas and I own a flagship American product. The problem is this. They don't have the relationship to the brand that Americans do. And so if you get two people that are billionaires, yes, once in a while a foreigner will win. But unless that person grew up in Japan as a Los Angeles Dodger fan, pick a team, and is willing to outbid an American buyer, the American buyer has a lot more ego gratification of buying the team. Hmm. But that may change. I mean, these teams, especially in basketball and soccer, are becoming global brands. So that emotional equity that we've talked a lot about is just still in favor of the American. The American I think player. so at this time. But I'm, one of the things you'll know about me is I'm very good at predicting the past, I'm not that good at predicting the future. <laughs> You're very lucky, by the way, because guys like us, we're, we're trying to still remember what day of the week it is. So I'm very impressed that you were able to do it. Sal, what a what a pleasure, a true pleasure it is to oh, thank like you. You're very kind. Sal. You're very No, kind. I'm not I'm kind at all. A guy like you been through a heck of a run in in in, in life's DNA that you were dealt. And and without getting into it in this conversation. You know, you, you, you seem to be the real deal who embraces life, lives each day like it's the Super Bowl or the World Series, and truly, truly does it in the way that I think anyone watching this program or listening to this program says the guy's the real deal. He's a guy of truth. And you know, the man who would rather not get box seats in the best seats in the house to watch his team play, even though they're playing another owner's team, he's not going to do that because he just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to make for uncomfortable scene because he loves the New York team so much. That's, that's an unusual testament to someone's integrity, by the way. You know what? I, I, I really respect people. I respect Look, I started out with nothing. Remember, I just told you I was a shoeshine boy, right? By the way, so was my father. Right. And so many people, look, over 80% of American millionaires are first-generation millionaires. I mean, this is the greatest country in the world that gives us opportunities. Look, it's got some warts on it, but it's the greatest country in the world. And when you come here from someplace else, you learn to appreciate that. And I appreciate people, and I appreciate the opportunities they've given me. And so when it's my turn to do something, I want to do it the best that I can. But I also want to be fair and honest, always. One of the things that I hammer into my people is we're here to make long-term friends. That's what we want to do because 
I'm not going to be here forever. You know, look, I'm at the end of my economic life. Let's be honest. Okay. But I want to pass on. I want to pass on those guidelines, those leadership qualities to people. That's why I love teaching. Because you get great students from all over the world, really smart people from cultures everywhere. And you want to teach them the right way to do things. You don't win if you cheat. That's not winning. That's something, but it's not winning. And that's not the right way to do it. So maybe I'm old fashioned. Maybe my time has passed, but that's okay. I'm still above ground. Any day above ground is a good day. Every breath, a blessing. You're not kidding. That is what, a be- what a beautiful place to, to conclude today's discussion. We're going to do it again. Okay, Steve. And uh, real nice meeting. Thank you for spending okay. the time with me. All the best, Steve. All right. You got it, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.